as we get started, I, I want to remind you uh, that we've been talking about some things that are essential to church. What is church? When you break it down to its essential pieces, what's left? What's there? Because it's important as we step into a new season with new uh, challenges and realities that we realize that God's doing some new things and it's exciting. Um, but some people are kind of shaken sometimes. They look around and go, this isn't familiar. This is new. So is this church? You know, I thought church looked like this or I, I, thought, I thought these were the things we're supposed to do. And we're breaking it down biblically and saying, what is important to church? How do we do those things in different settings? How do we do those things, um, whether you're still online with us or you're, you're coming to an in-person gathering or you're meeting house to house with a small group of people? How do we keep connected and how do we keep living out and being the church that God's called us to be? Because we are the church. We don't go to church we are the church. How do we do that? So one of the things we want to talk about today is something we touched on uh, last week. We, we talked about honor last week, and honor is so necessary. It's so vital to the kingdom of God. It's so vital to the body of Christ. In fact, in, uh, as we read last week in 1 Corinthians 12, he says that honor is one of the things that keeps there from being any division in the body. When we uh, bestow honor on the members that are lacking honor, uh, on the members that, that maybe aren't receiving the same amount of honor as another part of the body, that, that it, the Bible says that God bestows on them a much more abundant honor. And it says we do as well. And when this happens, he says that there may be no division in the body and that the body parts, each member of the body would have the same care for one another. We talked about honor and the importance of it, honoring being something that, that comes from a spirit that's been renewed, honor coming from a place that, that you're saying, in Christ, I have everything I need, and so I can give without feeling like this is taking away from me. I can give and give and give because he gave to me so freely. You know, uh, honor is one of those things that is not an ornament in your life. You don't hang it on to you. It is a fruit, not an ornament. So a fruit is something that naturally will come out. Uh, an ornament is something you hang on and, and it's, it's pretend. It, you, you make it look like it belongs there. But when fruit's coming out of your life, that doesn't mean that you're not having to choose it. It doesn't mean you don't have to think about it. It does mean you have to be diligent, but it is, it is something that will come out of a renewed spirit. If you will encourage it, if you will let it come out, it will be from God and not from you. So one of the things that we said, I don't believe I said it in the sermon, but I said it in the chat um, as we were watching on Sunday morning, was that uh, somebody I respect, uh, Bishop Tony Miller, had said this in a conference I was at. He said one of, the, one of his definitions of honor was that you celebrate who people are without getting hung up on what they're not or who they're not. You know, you celebrate who they are without getting hung up on who they're not. That's not the only definition of honor. It's certainly not the definition of honor when you're honoring um, a leader, an authority like a prime minister or a king or, or a president. That, that may not be that definition there. But when it comes to honoring one another, that's one of the ways we can honor each other is by celebrating what God has put in that person. Choosing to celebrate who they are and who God made them to be rather than all the things you wish they were because that's how we get caught up in, in needless criticism, in tearing down and nitpicking. That doesn't mean there's no correction, but let me be honest with you. You're not called to correct most people. God will set up 
relationships in your life where there are people that you give an open door to correct and there are people that God puts you in a position uh, to bring correction in a loving way. But you're not called to bring correction to everybody you disagree with. That's just not biblical. And it's not what God's called you to. And it's damaging to both parties, to you and the person you're trying to correct. If there's not relationship, if there's not love, if God didn't open that door, you're doing it. Maybe you're doing it because you want to be helpful. Maybe you're doing it because you want to prove you're right. Maybe you're doing it because you just think God needs somebody to do it. But let me tell you something. God sets those relationships up, not us. And when we try to step into a relationship where that's not the open door we have, we're not called to correct that person, we end up doing more damage than good. So how do I celebrate the good things that God's doing in someone that's very different from me? We have different kinds of people at our church. We've got people that are very, uh, very left-brained and we've got people that are very right-brained. We've got, we got people that are great administrators. We've got people that are great organizers. We've got people that are great artists and creators that, that think in a different way than, than maybe the person who's just line by line, precept by precept. But all of these people are necessary in the body. And so when we learn to celebrate who they are and not get hung up on what they're not, then God works in those relationships. And we need to learn to rejoice. Rejoice is a verb that shows up so many times in the Bible. It shows up over and over again. And you might say, well, I rejoice when I feel I've got a reason to rejoice. But you know, you always have a reason to rejoice. Philippians 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. So there's there's your amount of times you need to rejoice, always. But he says, rejoice in the Lord. So you always have a reason to rejoice when you're saying, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. I'm rejoicing in what he's doing. I'm rejoicing at his hand in this. I'm rejoicing in how he's taking this situation. I'm rejoicing in what he's doing in this person. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he goes and says, and again, I will say rejoice. Now, when you understand that in the original Greek, he's not just saying, I'm saying it again, rejoice. He's saying, I will say this again. I'm going to keep saying this as long as you need to hear it. Every time I write to you, I'm going to remind you. Whenever we hear, we, we, we get together again, I'm going to tell you, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So here's the question. And, and it's, it's answered very well in Philippians. Here's the question. Can I rejoice in the Lord by rejoicing in people? Now you might say, well, no. Uh, rejoicing the Lord is rejoicing the Lord. So that means I'm just thinking, well, God, you're good. They're, they're dumb, but you're good. Uh, they're, they're evil, but you're righteous. You know, you, you might think that's rejoicing in the Lord. But if you read Philippians, there's plenty of times that Paul says things like, complete my joy by having this attitude, the same mind towards one another. Complete my joy by being in unified in spirit. He says, he says um, you are my joy, my crown, Philippians. He says, I've greatly rejoiced to see your progress in the faith. So he's saying, I get joy out of what God's doing in your life. I get joy out of what God's doing in your life. I'm going to give you a cheat code, a tip that you, that you may not have considered before. When you're in ministry, when you're pastoring, and when you know people like Paul knew these people, you probably know some things about them that could cause you to say, I'm discouraged or I wish they were doing more or they're not perfect. Of course that's true. Anytime we get to know someone, you start to get to know the things that aren't perfect. None of us are perfect. 
And Paul knew that this church wasn't perfect. There, there's no implication here uh, that, that this church is doing everything right. In fact, in that very letter, right before he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice, right before it, he's telling two ladies that are in strife, causing division in the church. He's saying, you guys need to learn to get along. And he tells one of the guys in the church, you need to help them get along. So He's not pretending that everything's perfect or everything's right, but he's rejoicing in what God's doing. He says, I rejoice to see your progress in the faith. When we rejoice in progress, that, that's not the same as rejoicing in perfection. Rejoicing in progress means you're being moved towards his perfection. You're not there, but you're moving in the right direction. And in ministry, it's so important. In the Christian walk, it's so important. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is a strange book. It's a good book, but it's a strange book. There's some times in there that you go, what is this guy getting at? This is either depressing or I don't know what he's getting at. And, and it's a book written by Solomon as he's an old man. You may know that Solomon uh, asked of the Lord, Lord, give me a hearing and an understanding heart. And God gave, in, in, some translation says, give me wisdom. But what he really asked for was a hearing heart or an understanding heart. And God said, because you asked for this, I'm going to give you all these other things you didn't ask for. And I'm going to give you the wisdom you asked for. And Solomon received it and became one of the wisest men to ever reign, uh, to ever rule. And he became a great king in Israel. But at some point, he let his own political ambitions, he let his own designs on how to keep Israel safe, he let that take precedence over what God had told him to do. And he began to uh, marry, uh, make these political alliances where he had to marry these women to, to keep peace. And, and, and he married a bunch, I mean, he, had, he had hundreds and hundreds of women that he's married to, which already is its own problem. But he, 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 he does this to, you know, to make political alliances. Instead of trusting God to keep the peace, he thought he could. And, and so he really, his life went off track. He starts worshiping their gods to keep them happy. And he falls away from the Lord. But when he's an old man, he comes back. And, and, and we see something in his writings in Ecclesiastes. He says, I was young, but now I'm old. And he begins to tell the story of, of, of the realities that he's come across and the things he's learned. And one of the things he says is that um, the more wisdom you have, uh, the more sorrow you have, the more knowledge you have, the more grief you have. That's depressing. Uh, he says, you know, with your knowledge, you're, you'll get more grief. And as, as wisdom, or sorry, with wisdom, you'll get grief. And with knowledge, your sorrow will increase. Well, that's, that doesn't make me too excited to learn something. But he says, he says this to show you that sometimes he's not talking about wisdom of God. He's not talking about the, the spirit of God. He's talking about his own understanding. And he says, the more I learned, the more depressed I got. Have you ever noticed the more you learn about the world, the more depressed you could be because you just see everything that's wrong. The more you grow in Christ, the Bible says that your love needs to grow within all discernment. As your discernment grows, your love needs to grow. As your love grows, your discernment needs to grow. They need to grow together or else the more you are discerning without love, you'll become critical. And that criticism is not healthy. It's not, it's not a good criticism. It's an unhealthy criticism. And the more you grow in that, the more damaging you're going to be, the more bitter you're going to be. You know, you know you'll start recognizing the things that aren't right 
before you recognize the things that are. You'll immediately see things that aren't perfect and it'll bug you. That's what happens when there's no grace. That's what happens when there's no love. That's what happens when there's no mercy and you don't understand the mercy that's been given you. You start to focus on the flaws rather than on what God is doing. But Paul said, I rejoice to see your progress. If we can rejoice in what God is doing, even when it's not perfect, that's a win. That's God working in it. And it opens the door for God to use you to be an encouragement, to be a support for that person that's coming along. If Jesus had told you everything you needed to change, the moment you got saved, you'd quit. You would have quit on the first day. You would have fainted if he told you, these are all the things you're doing wrong. I need you to fix all these things. There's no way you could have done it. But step by step, he took you. And you felt his joy. When you first believed, you felt his joy when you made that first step towards him. You, you felt like a child, like, like my son, the way I felt when he took his first steps. His first steps were not his best steps. His first steps were followed by a lot of falls, but they were his first steps. And because I recognize that those first steps will lead to other steps, which will lead to better steps, and will eventually lead to running and independence, you rejoice in the first steps. You don't criticize your kid for falling. You rejoice for walking. This is what we need in the church. We need to rejoice in what God's doing. We need to rejoice in what God's doing in one another. We need to celebrate each other. Good friend of ours, uh, Pastor Kyle Horner from uh, New Jersey and Philadelphia, he, he's said this. He's, he's got um, uh, some sports celebrities in his church, and, and he was being interviewed and asked, what's it like to have celebrities in your church? How do you handle that? And he looked at him and he said, uh, we have lots of celebrities. We celebrate everybody. Because that's the word celebrity means someone that's being celebrated. And he's saying, we celebrate everybody in our church. So the, the, the so-called celebrities are no different than everybody else. We choose to celebrate everyone and celebrate what Christ is doing in everyone. Not celebrating uh, who we were without him, but celebrating who we are with him. That is so critical in, in the church. It's so important in the church. And I hope we can get a, a hold of this because it's not just a suggestion. It's a command that we choose to rejoice you know, joy is a noun, right? Joy is a noun. It's something you have. Joy is what you have, but rejoice is a verb. Joy is what you have. Rejoice is what you do. It's a choice. You have to choose to rejoice. The Bible says, I will rejoice. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. My will is involved. So, you don't just get rejoicing because good things have happened. You choose rejoicing in the good times and in the hard times. We read in Romans how it says, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we talked about mourning with those who mourn. We, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how important it was for the, bodies to, to, the body parts to feel the suffering of the other body parts, that that's important. God uses that in the healing process. But now let's flip it. Let's, let's look at the other side. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's a command. Can I ask you a question? Would God command you to do something if you already did it naturally? Would there be so many scriptures telling you to rejoice if no one had to tell you? Like if you just rejoiced whenever you were supposed to rejoice, you felt like rejoicing, no one would have to say rejoice. No one would have to say, again, I'll tell you rejoice. As long as we preach, as long as I get together with you, I will tell you to rejoice. No one would have to do that because you just do it. But if, if the scripture keeps telling us rejoice, 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 there must be a need to tell us. 
I want to tell you a story, and, and, and it's about Jesus being confronted. Um, in, in Luke chapter 15, we see this story of the prodigal son, right? It's one of the most famous parables that Jesus tells, most famous stories that Jesus tells. But in Luke 15, he actually tells three parables back to back to back. And they are um, really important. They all flow together. They're not different topics. They're the same topic, hit from different angles. Now, sometimes when Jesus tells a parable, it's just part of his sermon. It's part of his teaching. Like when he wanted to explain the kingdom and he told different parables, different stories to illustrate the kingdom. He, he said, look at it from this side and this side and this side. And, and that was important. But a lot of times when he tells a parable, he's actually answering a question that was asked him. It wasn't part of a sermon. It was an answer to a question. And so in order to understand the parable, sometimes you need to understand the question that led to that parable as an answer. In Luke 15, when he talks about the parable of the prodigal son, many of you know there was a son that asked for his inheritance early and took it and left and went to a faraway land where people didn't follow God like they did at his father's house. He went away, and the Bible says he spent all his money on loose living. He wasted all of it, and he did things he shouldn't have done. And he got so uh, uh, poor and dejected by wasting everything that eventually he starts feeding pigs, something that was unclean in his culture. He was doing it because he was desperate. And he's feeding the pigs, and he's actually jealous of the pigs. He's wishing he could eat what they ate. That's how bad off he is. And he says to himself, uh, the Bible says he came to his senses, and he said to himself, if only I could go home to my father and just be one of his servants. Because he said, I, I know I can't be his son, but even if I could be his servant, I, I know that his servants eat better and are treated better than I am right now. So he goes home and he devises this plan and makes a speech in his head of what he's going to say. He goes home and the, Jesus tells us that every morning that this, his father's been going up to the road looking for him. And when his father sees him from far off, his father runs to him and meets him on the road and embraces him. And he says, he starts his speech that he's prepared. And he says, Father, I know I've sinned against you. I know I'm not worthy to become your son. If I could just be one of your servants. And he starts that speech and his dad stops him. And his father says, forget all of that. We're going to celebrate tonight. For my son was lost and now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And he says, go, he tells his servants, he says, go get him some fresh clothes. Go put a ring on his finger. Go put a clean turban on his head. All of these things that, that signify not only that he is right, that he is clean, but also he's going to have a ring on his finger. He's restored to authority in my house. The father did all this right away. Didn't wait for the boy, to, the young man, to prove himself or, or to, to, to get his life right. He just received him and celebrated that, that amazing first step to come home. And actually, in their culture, when you went out to meet someone, you showed them honor. Outside of your house to meet a guest, you showed them honor. And the further out from your house you met them, the more honor you showed them. So the more important the guest, the further out you'd meet them. And so when the father ran to meet his son, he was showing honor that this young man didn't really deserve, but he did it anyways. He celebrated not a perfect son, but he celebrated a right choice. He celebrated what God was doing. He celebrated the restoration of a lost son that was now found. And he says 
several times in this parable, he says, come celebrate with me. We've got to celebrate. Let's celebrate. The Bible tells us that, that the, the other son, the brother, the older brother, who had never left and stayed here and worked, he was upset. He was angry when he heard about this. And he said this, he said, um, he said, his father, you know, his father sent servants, said, invite the brother. The brother said, I'm not coming. I'm upset about this. He never threw a party for me. Uh, why should I come to this? And the father says to him, come, the father comes out and he, and he says, uh, um, the young man has become angry. The father goes to meet him in Luke 15, verse 29. The father, he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years, I've been serving you and I have neg- never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. In other words, you could have had a goat if, any, if you ever asked. You could have had a party if you asked. He said, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. I love that. I love that translation where he says he was dead and he has begun to live. He has begun to live. We have to begin to celebrate the beginnings. We have to rejoice in the first steps. We can't wait till someone's perfect because none of us will ever be that until Jesus returns and, 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 and totally renews us. We're not, we're moving towards perfection, but we're not there yet. And so we've got to celebrate the beginnings. And the father doesn't say, I felt like having a party. He said, we had to celebrate. Remember, the, the older brother says, but what about me? Why well, You never threw one for me. And that's, that's what the enemy uses. And you see a lot of that, even in the body of Christ, when someone is being focused on that's not us, we go, but what about me? Why don't I deserve that? What about me? We really want it to be about us. But he says, it's not about you. And you could have had this at any time. Right now, this is about your brother. What about me, though? Don't I matter? Yes, you matter, but this is about your brother. We are celebrating your brother. He's come home. We had to rejoice and celebrate. Hear that. Remember, Jesus is telling the story here. And listen to what he says. We had to rejoice and celebrate. In the two parables that came before this, he talks about a woman who lost a very valuable coin. And when she found it, she called all her neighbors and said, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin. We read about, uh, before that, we read about uh, a man who lost his uh, one sheep, and he left 99 sheep to find the one. And it says this, he says to all his friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. And he says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In every one of these parables, there, is, there are a couple tying themes. Number one, lost become found. But the, every parable ends the same way. Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me for this person. Rejoice with me about this person. Rejoice with me about this one coming home. Rejoice with me about this one coming back to life. Rejoice with me about this one repenting. Why did Jesus tell these three parables? Remember, I told you, if the parables were an answer to a question, we should probably know the question. He says in the beginning of Luke 15, verse 1, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. 
And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. They didn't rejoice that the sinners were coming. They didn't rejoice that the tax collectors were coming. They were angry, began to grumble. They weren't mad that Jesus preached to those people because they wanted to preach to those people too. They were trying to preach to those people, but those people weren't interested in coming to their meetings. You know why? There was no life there. There was no grace to save. There was no grace to set them free. There was only condemnation. And these people knew they were bad. They just didn't know how to, how to get out of it. And Jesus showed them life. And he received them and he accepted them and he loved them. And these men were not mad at Jesus for preaching the sinners. They were mad at Jesus for receiving them and eating with them, for celebrating with them. You shouldn't celebrate with these people. They're not good people. You see, the Pharisees were looking, they were looking for this person to be found at the end, at the end of their journey. They were looking for this person to become perfect. But Jesus was like that father, just rejoicing that those people took the first step to come home. Because he knew that step will lead to another step. You ever wonder why uh, Alcoholics Anonymous offers, you know, gives out these chips? Not all of them do, but many of the organizations will give out a chip for 24 hours sober and for a month sober and two months and and on and on and on. And you might say, well, I've been sober for 37 years. (laughs) I mean, uh, really, a month? Are you impressed with that? Yes, I'm impressed with that. Because I know that that month was so much harder than the 37 years I've been sober because I never have had an addiction to alcohol. So I am really proud of my friend who, who, who 24 hours has been sober and then a month and then two months because we have to rejoice in the first steps because the first steps are sometimes the hardest steps. And those are the steps where you see God change the momentum of a life from heading to hell to heading to the, to the path of life, from heading down to death to life and darkness to light we are seeing God turn a life around and the truth of the matter is we all are on that journey and if we think we've completed it we lie to ourselves if we think we're not moving we don't have to move that we've already arrived then we're in worse trouble than anybody else because we're self-deceived and we resist God we're resisting the grace of God and that is a dangerous place to be we have to learn to rejoice Jesus answered the Pharisees grumbling By saying this, there are three stories I'm going to tell you where lost things become found. And in all three of them, there has to be rejoicing. Rejoice with me. And in those cases, God is the one saying to us, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. Will you rejoice with him? Will you choose to enjoy enjoy what God is doing? Enjoy what God is doing even when it's not about you. Even when you have a hard time identifying with it. Some of you are so um, growing so mature in the faith and you're growing in wisdom and knowledge and discernment. But if you're not growing in love and mercy, then the more you learn, the more miserable you'll be. And you will be that old grandpa that just, I mean, I know some really, really happy elderly people. I've learned something that there's got to be a point in your life 
where you just choose either I'm going to be a happy old person or a grumpy old person. You ever notice that really old people, they're either just the nicest people to be around or the most miserable people to be around. And I'm not judging them. I know a lot of them are dealing with health issues and I mean, they've had to have their friends die. I get it. But at some point in your life, you have to decide, am I going to let everything, every little thing bother me? Am I going to be critical of everything? Because those people become the miserable, miserly, old people on the porch that just want to shoot their BB gun at the kids. But the people that choose, I'm just going to celebrate these grandkids and I'm going to rejoice in these people that I'm getting to know. And I may have lost people, but I'm gaining new friends. Those people tend to be the happiest and most generous and gentle people I know. Some of the most joy-filled people I know are elderly people that made a choice. I'm not going to let them, they, they've lived life. They've got wisdom. They've got experience. They see when some of the young people are doing, making the same mistakes they made, but they're choosing to rejoice in the good. And because of that, they're full of joy and grace and generosity and love. Those are the kind of people that, that actually make you want to grow closer to Jesus. They make you want to change. They make you want to say, I know I'm not perfect and I want to move in that direction. And you've helped me because you received me. Honor sometimes looks like rejoicing in who they are rather than getting hung up on who they're not. Rejoicing in what God's doing. Can you see what God's doing in this situation? Can you see what God's doing in this life? Have you been able to rejoice in a season of COVID? Have you been able to not rejoice in the disease, not rejoice in the virus, but rejoice in what God has been doing? Rejoice in the people coming to the Lord. Rejoice in the fact that the church has had to innovate, and maybe that's a good thing. Rejoice in things. I'm not saying, see, we understand this. Rejoicing doesn't mean we stop working to get better. Just like that person who gets that chip and says, I'm a month sober. It doesn't mean they're done, but we're rejoicing in the step. You see, it's important to recognize that just because we rejoice doesn't mean we're finished. You know, we rejoice in a victory that, you know, finally there's a, a, a law passed that need to be passed. Or, or we rejoice in, a, in, in, in somebody that made a right decision that they need to make. It doesn't mean we're saying that everything's perfect. It just means we're celebrating the step in the right direction. And that joy and that rejoicing will bind us together. Because what you're saying is you see me and you're honoring God and I'm honoring, you're honoring God in me and I'm honoring God in you. The Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're honoring what God is doing. By that, we're honoring God. You guys ever read the story of Jonah? Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians were a brutal people. Uh, their empire was a brutal empire. They, they crushed their enemies. They tortured people. They executed people in brutal ways. They led their prisoners away on fish hooks. They, did, they skinned people alive. There were things they did that were horrible. And when the Assyrians uh, were neighbors, you know, uh, you never knew when they were going to attack. You never knew what they were going to do. They, had been, they made the Nazis look very nice. They were bad dudes. They bragged about being bad dudes. If you, uh, the, some of the Assyrian artifacts we have to this day are the kings bragging about how cruel they were to the ones that resisted them. So Jonah doesn't want to go tell them to repent. He wants them to perish. God said, I'm going to give them a time limit. And if they don't repent in this time limit, I'm going to destroy them. Go tell them that. And Jonah resisted. Finally, God, uh, you know, the great story of a great fish, a great sea creature, whatever that looked like, swallowing Jonah and then spitting him up on the land. 
And then Jonah's life is spared and he, he changes his heart and he says, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. I'll go to these Assyrians and tell them to repent. And he does. He tells everyone, repent or perish. And the big surprise is that the Assyrians, the Ninevites actually listened to him and they actually repented. And they didn't know how to repent. So they all fasted and put ashes on and, and, and they didn't know. So they said, well, we better play it safe. Even our animals are going to repent. Even our little kids are going to repent. We don't know. We just want to get right with God. Jonah found a place on a cliff overlooking the city, just waiting for God to destroy it. Finally, justice. These are the bad guys. And if you don't think you'd be like that, Think how you feel at the end of a movie where the bad guys get theirs, where the bad guys get what's coming to them. How many times have we watched that movie and celebrated when the bad guys are utterly destroyed and humiliated? Jonah was that guy. But remember what Jesus said to his disciples when they wanted to call down fire. He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. For the Son of Man, Jesus, came to save the world, not to condemn it. So Jonah waits for the moment of destruction. He can't wait. Here it is, God's justice. And nothing happens. And I want to read you what happens in Jonah chapter 4. The conversation between God and Jonah is quite telling because we all kind of recognize ourselves in it. Jonah chapter 4 Verse 1 says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He said, I knew at home that you were a good God. I knew you were uh, merciful. I knew that you were loving and gracious and compassionate. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you were abounding in mercy and loving kindness. And and these are all things we, we say, yeah, praise the Lord. But Jonah was saying, that's my problem. That's why I tried. I tried to get away so that you wouldn't be nice to these people. He said this, therefore now, O Lord, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. He's suicidal because of the goodness of God. That's how bitter he's become. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? What a question. Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and he sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. Thank God for God appointed worms. Can you imagine this worm getting his appointment from God? He's a ministry worm. He's got a job and that job is to eat that plant. God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. Mission accomplished, sir. And it says, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry. Yeah, even to death. I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, 
You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? Question mark. And that's the end of the book of Jonah. What a strange ending, a cliffhanger. We don't know what Jonah said back to God, but it ends with God's statement. And I think it's important that we recognize when God chooses to end a book, you should probably pay attention to the last thing he said. Shouldn't I have compassion on these people who don't know their right hand from their left? I'll give you a brief history lesson. The Assyrians didn't suddenly become great people. They didn't suddenly become nice. In fact, later on, God prophesies against them and says, you guys went back to your ways, you become oppressive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe, I'm going to end this empire. I'm going to, you know, power will transfer to somebody else. But in that moment, they repented and God spared them. And he said, don't you think I care about these people? I created them. They don't even know their right hand from their left. They're so dull. They're so blind. They don't know what they're doing. He said, and there's even animals there that I care about. Jonah was mad that God was compassionate. Instead, Jonah could have rejoiced in their repentance like God rejoiced in their repentance. He could have felt God's compassion. He could have felt God's mercy, but his own agenda, his own hurt, his own fears, his own anger and bitterness had crept in and kept him from feeling the heart of God. And the question I want to ask you today is, do you have the heart of God about the people around you? Do you have the heart of God about the people in this church or the people outside this church? Do you have the heart of God? Because if you do, you will rejoice when God is at work, even when it seems contrary to what you want, even when it has nothing to do with you, even when it's people that have hurt you or done you wrong. You will rejoice when God is working. You'll rejoice in the first step. You'll rejoice on who they are and not get hung up on who they're not. Because God didn't get hung up on who you weren't. Jesus didn't get hung up on who you weren't. And this is so important that we catch today. And I want you to hear me. That God wants you to catch his heart. There are canaries in the mine that tell you when your heart's not in the right place. Remember we read about one of the, one of the things that we needed to, to, to be in unity is that we needed to put, all, put off all bitterness and jealousy and malice and anger and clamor and divisions. You know, uh, Galatians says there's the fruit of the Spirit, but it says the fruit of the flesh. Some of the fruit of the flesh are jealousy and envy and factions and divisions. These are all proof that we're not walking by the Spirit. There's canaries in the mind telling you that there's something off. And I'll tell you a couple ways you can know. Jesus told us, bless them. Pray for those that persecute you. Bless your enemies. Love them. Pray for them. Bless them. If you can't pray for the people that hurt you, your heart's not right. If you can't bless the people that hate you, you'll know you need work on your heart. If you can't feel the compassion when God says these people are coming to repentance, if you can't rejoice, if you find it hard to rejoice for them, 
when they just make a step or when God does something in their life or when they're honored. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 says we rejoice when one part is honored. When they get honor that you don't feel like you're getting and you feel they're getting a party that you're not receiving and you feel like jealous and bitter, that's a canary in the mine and it's telling you there's toxic gas in the mine and God wants to clear it out. So God wants to clear out the toxicity in your heart. He wants to clean you and and wash you and purify you. And so when you see that, go say, God, no, I want to feel what you feel. I want to rejoice when you rejoice and choose to rejoice even when you don't feel it. Get on God's side. Feel what God feels. Do what God does. He loves you, but he loves them too. So begin to develop a lifestyle of rejoicing in what God's doing. Rejoicing in the Lord, even when it means rejoicing in people that you don't quite agree with or that aren't perfect yet, because God knows we're not perfect yet. Rejoice. Let's have a culture of rejoicing when somebody makes a step. Rejoicing in the little victories and the big victories. Rejoicing in repentance. Rejoicing in forgiveness. Rejoicing in the move in the right direction. Choose not to get hung up on everything they're not and begin to rejoice what God is doing and who they are because in that there's life. And I'll tell you, the, the, the thing, the temptation is if I rejoice in this now, they'll think they're done and they won't try to get better. But that's not true. It, remember with your child, when you celebrated those first steps, it made them want to try again. It made them want to do more. When, when we rejoice in the step in the right direction, We're actually encouraging people to keep taking steps. When your spouse makes a move to apologize, don't make it hard for them to say it. Come, when they make a step towards you, make a step towards them. When someone who's hurt you comes and tries to to make it right, don't make it hard for them to make it right. Meet them halfway because in that, what we're doing is we're honoring God by honoring one another. I love you guys. God is at work in the church today, and I believe that God can work in your heart. If you'll let him, you'll give him access. He's going to do it in you. Begin to rejoice, not just in in what God's doing in people, but in the Lord always. Find reasons to rejoice and choose to rejoice. Rejoicing is is not an overflow of emotion. Rejoicing is a choice, and you do it in good times, you do it in bad times. Uh, You do it in persecution. You do it in celebration. Rejoice. Celebrate what God is doing. Celebrate who they are. Don't get hung up on who they're not. Let's become sons and daughters of the Most High. Let's act like sons and daughters of the Most High and catch His heart.